0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number four of the Book of Lost Tales, part two. Tonight, we are going to finish the Turin Turambar story, the first iteration of the Turin Turambar story. Um, <clears throat> uh, and so I'm, uh, well, I was about to say I'm looking forward to that, but, you know, it's really kind of hard to look forward to the end of the Turin Turambar story. Um, we were discussing last week about how how differently this the story kind of hits us, I certainly it definitely hits me differently uh, than the later version does um but I'm not sure that the ending of this version isn't more horrible, really than the later one um, but um (laughs) yeah, Tom says it never really ends it's kind of like the spell of bottomless dread uh, (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, I kind of like that. Um, but first, uh, let us uh, let us first touch on happier things. Uh, that is a, um, a, uh, a a a a quick announcement, uh, and the announcement is that we are soon approaching uh, the release of our summer our Mythgard summer courses for this year. Uh, and uh, which I am very excited about i 'm going to be teaching a class again this term, um, but I want to start off with uh, the the brand new class that well actually both of these classes are new that we haven 't offered before, and Brandon Young has guessed it. Our first class is Dr. Amy Sturgis teaching a full semester class on the work of h p Lovecraft. Uh, this is a course that Many people in the mythgard program have been uh, uh uh begging for for a while and Dr. Sturgis has heard you she 's extremely uh excited uh to uh, uh to do this class um, so I, I know Lovecraft is somebody who has had an impact perhaps not as broad uh as uh, as tolkien's uh but in some ways uh in some ways i think as deep uh, I, I know that you know love the work of Lovecraft uh has really has really, you know, it really, really hits people and is really, uh, has really meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, uh, and I agree, uh, Brandy probably is the greatest horror writer of all time, I think. Anyway, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to go along with that statement. Um, but uh, anyway, so he, he's, he's, this is going to be a, a really great opportunity if you've never really had the opportunity to delve into, uh, the Lovecraftian world, uh, before. Uh, This will be a great experience, a great opportunity to do it, not only under the expert guidance uh, and wonderful tutelage of Dr. Sturgis, but also um, uh, with plenty of uh, moral support (laughs) from others, uh, you know, so that you're not all alone and scared while while you're reading. This should be a really great class. Uh, I'm also teaching a class, as I mentioned, and this is going to be a brand new class I've never offered before, um, but uh, uh, a course that I have really uh, wanted to do for a long time. And the course is going to be called Tolkien's Poetry. Um, I'm just going to be studying Tolkien's poetry from one end of the semester to the next. I'm going to look at his entire career corpus, um, of short poems. We're not going to uh, get a chance to study the long poems, things like The Fall of Arthur and Sigurd and Gudrun and and, uh, and things like that, but all of his shorter works. Okay, there are probably one or two I'm going to leave out, but um, but I'm going to try to hit as absolutely as many uh, as I really can, and yes, Brandon, including the poems in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings as well. Um, I, I did a bunch of poetry um, when I did the Beyond Middle Earth class, now two summers ago, in the summer of 2012, um, and... Uh, Or was it 2013? It was 2013, but and that was cool, but uh, but it still felt really rushed. Uh, You know, I only had a a couple weeks to uh, um, to do that, and to me, it was it was that was just kind of like the taste that I uh, that I have not been able to. Uh, that that I didn't find satisfying enough. Um, I always love talking about Tolkien's poetry, and this semester I am fixing to indulge myself. Uh, And the main thing, I think, about Tolkien's poetry, we're going to be looking at, as I said, about his his whole work from early fragments that we have, you know, from when Tolkien was a teenager all the way up through... um, you know the sort of the the final revisions of poems he was doing in the sixties um, we 're going to we 're going to sort of finish around the the adventures of Tom bombadil collection in the mid sixties um, and look at the whole scope along the way and if you want to get an understanding, if you want to be able to contextualize tolkien 's work in the process of his thought right. I know that you know we're here. We're doing Book of Lost Tales Part Two, right? Um, you know, but I know that the Middle Earth, the, the history of Middle Earth series as a whole, is really daunting uh, for a lot of people. It's you know, it's it's fantastic background. It's really fascinating to see how Tolkien's thoughts and ideas are growing over time. But I know that you know that the, you know, especially the reiteration of the different versions of the Silmarillion stories can be really hard to to keep straight. And of course. Many people have a hard enough time with just the published Silmarillion to kind of go back over multiple, uh, you know, often quite confusing and incomplete um, earlier versions of the Silmarillion story is, is often um, a little more than, than, than a lot of people want to do. But um, I think that this class would be a marvelous way to get a really good sense of basically how Tolkien's literary career went, where he started from, how his, you know, the sort of the directions in which his thought developed, how the Middle-earth stuff and, you know, how the Middle-earth stories grew out of his other thinking and how those all came together and where they led and how they came together with these other things that, uh, that he was thinking of and the way that um, we can sort of see Tolkien like Niggle in his story, Leaf by Niggle, Sort of tacking on these, you know, his other pictures around the edges of his great picture. Um, it's um, it's uh, it's very cool. Now, are we doing the ways of Beleriand? No, not doing the ways of Beleriand again. Short poems, short poems. We're not going to do the alliterative children of Hurin. We're not going to do uh, the lay of Lathian. Um, you know, if we, want, if we want to do the Ways of Balerion as a Mythgard Academy course, I'm totally cool with that, but I'm not going to we're just doing short poetry uh, in, in the course, and again my one of my primary goals there is to be able to give this kind of an overview so that we really can go, you know from like the 19-teens all the way forward to the 1960s, really look at 50 years of Tolkien's life uh, in poems which he was writing continuously all the way through there um, it's going to be a it's going to be really cool, so anyway so that's the plan, those are the, those are our lit classes, there are also maybe uh, upcoming soon, some additional forthcoming uh, announcements about other courses that may be available, perhaps language courses, but I will hold off on those for now um, but those are going to be our literature classes for this coming summer, and uh, they're going to be awesome, so the, the registration for those classes will open uh, within the next week or so hopefully somewhere around then um, soon, very soon. Anyway, um, so I want to let you guys know that that's what's coming up. Um, now we must steal ourselves and go back and look at the end of of Turin's story. Where I want to start, well, where I want to start is shockingly where I left off last time. But I want to kind of take a second to contextualize that a little bit. Um, we were just looking at the fall of the rodolph of the Rodolphim. I always screw up that name. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the fall of the people who will later on be the people of Nargothrond. Um, you know, with the, with the attack of the dragon, and we were looking at Turin's choice to come back, and the way we get Turin making the sort of comparatively positive dis- uh, choice to go back and 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 fight to the death, and you know, die while heaping a body of corpses before the door of uh, of you know Fe-Livrin's, uh father's house. Um, it's not like that's a happy ending, um, but the opportunity to sell your life dearly while trying to protect, you know, the elf maiden Phileverin Phy- to the death, like we, I, I, I think we can probably all agree that it's a way better outcome <laughs> than Turin actually gets. Um, and, 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 and again, it's, so to me it's really fascinating that he's given that option, right? You'll remember the later Turin Um, everything is... I mean, he comes back to Nargothrond in the later version only to find, you know, Glaurung already there and, and, uh, you know, everything already wrecked. So, uh, it's not that he gets a chance to turn the tide. It's not that he gets a chance to save the city or something like that. Um, but he does get a chance to, uh... to accomplish some good thing. You know, like Faramir says of Boromir, right? Um... In fact, he could uh, die almost exactly like Boromir, actually. Um, uh, but, um, uh, But he is not quite given that chance. And this leads to the moment where we see Turin, that is this Turin in this story, making what I think is the biggest choice he makes in the entire story. This is the moment that I think is... Um, you know, I would argue that this is the real turning point. There are obviously lots of really important moments in Turin's life, his departure from his you know, his separation from his mom, uh, you know, obviously the uh the uh the uh you know bit of exaggerated or exaggerated, aggravated, I mean, manslaughter that we got back in uh the uh the, 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 the caves of uh Artenor, um the death of Beleg, obviously those are really important things. But we um we haven't really seen him making a choice in that, in in the same sense in which we see him choosing in the later versions. Uh, let me try to illustrate what I mean by this. Remember the later Turin. right? And by the later Turin, by the way, I just want to clarify the reason I keep saying the later Turin instead of just referring to the Silmarillion. By the later Turin, I am embracing both the longer uh, Narn, Ehi, and Hurin uh, thing that we get in Unfinished Tales, the one that we read before last year and talked about then, and that's really sort of the definitive later, Turin Turambar story. The story that's in the Silmarillion was compressed from that. Um, that's that's the source of the Silmarillion version. And Christopher Tolkien deliberately chose to give a shorter version. Of course, as you probably know, it's all it's any. It's still the longest chapter in the Silmarillion. But uh, but anyway, that's why he compressed it because he didn't want it to. Uh, completely overwhelm the entire rest of the book, and it's from the, uh, it's from the, the sort of a slightly developed version of the Narn that we get the the separate Children of Horin. That's why he came back, I believe, Christopher came back and published the Children of Horin later on, because he wanted to give the full version of the story, and again, if you remember, those of you who took the Unfinished Tales class, the version of Unfinished Tales isn't quite complete, because... The Silmarillion version was already out there, so there are bits where he's like, and in this section, you know, and then you know we're going to skip over a whole bit because that, it's pretty much the same here as it was in the Silmarillion. So prior to the publication of the Children of Húrin, there wasn't any one place in which you could read, you know, cover to cover the entire story, you know, of the later, you know, the the latest development of the Turin Bar story. That's what the public the published Children of Húrin was. So okay. Um, so anyway, so that's why I keep saying the later Turin, because uh, I'm, so I'm so I'm referring to that Silmarillion, Narn, Children of Horin version of the story. Um, now, when we think about that version, about that later version, remember the very significant big choices that he makes, and the way in which the narrator emphasizes how important that choice is, and how sort of comparatively independent was Turin's just like sort of how forceful was his deciding in that moment. Two, which jump out to me uh, really prominently, again, I'm thinking here especially from this part of the story that is from his confrontation with, with Glaurung back, um, his decision not to go back to Doriath, right? Which he makes and remakes, like, three times um, he, he you know he doesn't go back with Mablung. he doesn't go back when Beleg finds him the first time he won't go back when Beleg comes in uh, and stays with him the second time um, so there's there's um, that's 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 one right and that's a huge decision in the sense of I mean you, you think of how much of Turin's life, how much of Turin's misfortunes that come after hang on that choice. Had he gone back to Doriath, things would have been fine. He should have gone back to... There were lots of reasons for him to go, have gone back to Doriath, right? Um, but he didn't, but he refused to do it. Um, so the, the kind of stubbornness which led Turin to stay out of Doriath plays a huge role and therefore has a big impact not only on, on like the shape of his career but on our perception of him. Right. Um, the Beleg's role there, you know, in sort of coming back and saying, please, please, please come back with me. And, you know, him saying no, no, no. That's what really emphasizes for us um, how uh, how how significant and and, and repeated is turn's choice. The second choice is th- with uh, Nargothrond and the bridge over the river Narog. And basically the way in which Turin is the champion for the foolhardy policy which ends up exposing them uh, to the dragon. Um, Now you might say, well hang on a second, Turin does that in the old version too. How is it different? I think it's pretty significantly different in a couple different ways. For one thing, we don't have the clear indicators that the concealment of that people is the right thing to do right? Um, In the later version, we get very clear, we get that scene where Finrod and Turgon are both given the vision from Ulmo, telling them that they should find a place of refuge where they can hide, and that therefore, you know, there might be a stronghold of the Eldar, which Morgoth won't be able to find. So the whole concept of the beginning of Nargothrond is this, like, divinely appointed quest to establish a secret stronghold. So let's not reveal the secret stronghold that Omo told us we should conceal seems like the pretty obvious move, right? Um, and to, 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 to diverge from that strategy seems like a pretty obviously bad move, you know, saying, no thanks, Omo, we're good, right? Uh, we're, we don't need to do what you told us to do. Um, we're going to do our own thing instead. In the older story, Um, In the Book of Lost Tales version, it is not at all that clear, I think, um, in any way. Their choice to be, you know, they they seem to just have a kind of a general preference for remaining hidden, and it's not obvious that that's the right thing to do. Um, It might be the more practical thing to do, but it's not necessarily clear that it's the right thing to do. Remember, we're told that there are many of the Rodolphlin who are... Who rally behind Turin's suggestion that they fight more openly because they want to defend these lands and not just concede them uh, to the orcs as they're coming through? And you know, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. We have the building, we have the building of the bridge by Turin in the later versions, right? Again, this this um, this bridge, which becomes, which is made explicitly within the story, into a symbol of this. Openness, right? Of this defiance, of this broadcasting of who they are, and their 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 sort of open defiance of Morgoth and his power, and we don't get that, right? Just a general like they weren't as secret as they were before, and nowhere in there do we get this idea. Turin comes this close to open usurpation of Orodreth's throne uh, in the later version, right? I mean, he is um, he is so masterful that people begin to listen to him and and don't even pay much attention to Oradreth anymore. He doesn't officially take the crown for himself, but it's, like, in the ballpark of that, right? Um, again, we clearly don't see... Um, we clearly don't see the uh, the same kind of dynamic. Again, he urges them to do this, and many people agree with them. So you can say well, it's still his fault that they made that choice and that therefore they were open to the dragon. Uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, but I just think it's very different. I think the dynamics of that are very different. And it is, le- you know, so it's pretty easy to say the fall of Gondolin or not, 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 not Gondolin. That's actually one thing we can't blame on Turin. Uh, the fall of Nargothrond is pretty much Turin's fault. I mean, he makes the call uh, and it happens because of him. Um, you can make that argument in the older text, but it's not really that clear. Both because he's not commanding; he's suggesting. Um, and uh, and anyway, it, it's not so obviously transgressive. The transgressive nature of that change in in, in policy, that change in strategy for those people, um, is is made very explicit in the later versions by those messengers from Ulmo who come to remind us, right? Who come to say, okay, people, it's time to go, right? Um, Abandon, you know, you're all going to die, cast that bridge into the river and and go and, you know, it's, it's just, you know, this is awful. Ulmo comes and says, and Turin speaks out against them and defies them, right? We just received messengers from Ulmo, but ignore them, right? And that, again, seems like a really obviously bad thing to do. So once again, we have later Turin making a doggedly, pig-headedly bad decision uh, uh, repeatedly, you know, under these repeated uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, hints, suggestions, strong suggestions, commands, that he do something else, right? Um, We don't get that from the early Turin, um, we don't see that same, you know, so it's, whereas those two decisions, are, you know, spotlights are really shown on those decisions by how, of the later Turin, by how how many times he repeats them by the the, the the number of indicators that he gets that he really shouldn't do this thing that he's insisting on doing, really emphasizes how much he is indeed insisting on doing them. We don't get that, I mean, I think we could make an argument that the early Turin doesn't really decide in either case. I mean, he chooses to leave Artenor, um, but, uh, but he never even gets the opportunity to come back. He's never invited back, right? And there's There's, not that, there's nothing of that same air of stubbornness, right? I, I, shall, I, I am Nathan the Wronged, right? Um, so I'm going to go. No, no, I shan't return. I'm not going to go back. Um, we don't ever get that from this Turin um and and again in his time with Redoltman I, I don't think we see anything like that same like I am doing this thing this is my uh choice is my determination um I'm going to be the champion of this disastrous thing I mean yeah it turns out not to be good um but I don't think uh, I don't think that. Yeah, Michael's reminding us, of course, that even Gondolin and Nargothrond were destined to fall, and that they should love not too much the work of their own hands. Exactly, but of course, that counsel by Omo is exactly what he's rejecting when uh, uh, when the messengers come, um, and that's most emphatic uh, in the uh, Narn slash Children of Húrin version uh, of the story. Um, yeah, so. Um, Yeah, good, good. And, Nick, I agree. uh, Nick uh, uh, Marazzo says, in this version, the the, you know, the place which is not yet Nargothrond seems like more of a temporary transient settlement, almost a hideout. Yeah, I agree. It's like the fall of it is not as big a deal. I mean, it's it's not that it's not any kind of deal, but it's not like, and the mighty Nargothrond has fallen. I I agree. The whole thing is lower key. Um, And... uh, so the, the the increased magnitude of the event, you know, of the fall of Nargothrond, um, is something which, again, I think really just emphasizes the significance of Turin's guilt. Um, and guilt, I think, is an important word. Notice Turin himself um, feels guilty in the early version, right? Um, it's guilt that leads him not to return to Artanor in the first place, right? Because he feels that there is blood on his hands, and he is, you know, he is guilty of the blood of of uh, Orgloff or whatever the heck Cyrus's name is not uh, is in the. In the I, I I don't know why I have a mental block on that name too. Or Orgoff, is it? Anyway. Um, So he feels like he's got blood, or at least wine, on his hands. And then, of course, he kills Beleg. And he's definitely not going back after he kills Beleg, because he's ashamed. Even though neither one of those things was exactly his fault, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that happens to the old Turin, right? Yes, he gets mad. Yes, he throws a drinking cup at the guy's face. But he wasn't trying to kill him. But then the guy dies. Oh, man. Like, okay. And then, you know, of course, the horrible, terrible killing up of... uh, of, uh, of, of, of Beleg, um, you know, which is even, obviously even more accidental, uh, and, uh, and terrible. So, like, the bad, and even this, like, the advice that he gives, it's not horrible advice. It's very understandable, and many people are sympathetic to it. Um, it turns out, you know, things don't work out very well, but it's not exactly on him. And again, this is where I come back to what, in my mind, is really significant the making of the sword by the Randolphlin for him, he asks them for a sword and they forge him this really quite morally shady sword that they give him and that sword that they have given him him, him, is where he gets his name, right? Um, And again, it's just the dynamics there are almost reversed from where we see them later on, where he is the dominant one who already has his... Sketchy black sword, right? Which is reforged for him, indeed in Nargothrond. But, um, uh, but but, you know, he he already has it, and he is identified by it. But again, it's his sword, and him going out in the front that leads. Whereas again, here they give him the sword, they give him the nickname. Um, You know, it's the role that he finds there. But rather than this being yet another example of Turin choosing badly in the old version, it's yet another example of something good for Turin going bad. That's the pattern that we have, not bull-headed, stubborn, and usually wrong. <laughs> Turin acting and insisting, as we get in the later version. Instead, we get poor Turin, poor, sad, and unhappy Turin, who keeps having everything good in his life wrecked. He had found Joy. It was limited joy, and touched always with the something more than touched. Um, you know, shot through thoroughly with the grief and mourning of his separation from Mavwin and his concern about his uh, mother and sister um, back in Dorloman, And yet, it was still he found some joy there, and he was accepted, and he was, um, he he was friends with Beleg and he was, uh, and, and he was uh, uh, the you know the adopted son of the king. But then he loses it, right? And off he has to go. Then he finds some transitory happiness with Beleg and the rest of his band of merry men, right? Until they're ambushed by and slaughtered by the orcs. And then, of course, you've got the terrible, terrible... Uh, killing of Beleg. and then he's brought back, and he recovers from his grief to some extent in, in among the Radulfim, and he helps them, um, and you know they are fighting together, and he he you know he finds a fair sister with all of the just skin crawlingly rushing, horrible irony of that. I mean, I can't even read that line where it's like, and he had found a fair sister in Phylivrim, and it's like, oh, the irony just like... Uh, I mean, it's so awful. Um... But 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 he's found happiness a little bit, a, a, a version of happiness again, right? In another, in another place where he is welcomed and and, 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 and admired and loved and, and has people who care about him, and, and then he loses it all again, right? That's the pattern that we keep getting here. Um, uh, uh, Mark Ingram was asking me if I would say that this Turin's bad choices add up to a whole Turin uh, on my Turin scale. See, I would never have invented the Turin scale of bad decision making, if this were the only Turin we ever had, right because it's this is a story that is fundamentally i think not about turin's choices um it's 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 about what happens to him. this Turin is just simply more unfortunate than the other Turin, um not in the sense of merely being unlucky right um though we're told that explicitly earlier early on but just like the terrible things that happen to him they're not um they're not independent of his actions right it's not it's not like the everything that happens to him is a pure accident which has nothing to do with his own with his own will, with his own volition. But the way in which they're tied to his actions just make them more horribly unfortunate. Like the manslaughter of Orgloff or Orgoff in the uh uh in, 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 in the Oven King's Halls, in, in, in uh in, in Tinwellens Halls. Um like yeah, he did it, but the, the death the actual death is just a misfortune. Um and it's um uh, uh it's uh, it's too awful. Tom was asking if uh uh do I think that uh the sketchiness of the sword suggests that those who forged it were sketchy too in some way? You know, Tom, it's hard to avoid that conclusion. And it's one of the things notice what happens, Tom, in the later versions, right? The later Turin's sketchy sword, which Beleg has originally, is indeed forged by a sketchy person, right? Uh it's the it's it's the it's the the product of Aeol, the Dark Elf and you know right away, they're you know Thingol and Melian are like, "Whoa! Some of the sketchy spirit of the Smith uh, is in this sword. Like, hey, be careful with this sucker because you know there's there's sketchiness afoot in this sword." Right? We don't get anything like that in this earlier version. Um, and I don't know if it's because Tolkien himself too was thinking this was was thinking the sword sword was kind of sketchy and didn't want that sketchiness associated with the Rodolphum or the later um, uh, later people in Nargothrond, so he shifted that off. I I mean, I don't know know if that was his motivation. Um, But, Tom, in the context of this story, it's hard to resist, in my mind, the idea that the sketchiness and aggression of the sword is, you know... Related at least to those who made it. And that's why, it's one of the reasons why, to me, though it seems like a small deal, the fact that they forged him his sword instead of him bringing it in, to me, has a pretty big impact. And it's why it really affects my reading of this portion of the story entirely. Because that, the fact that they forged him this bloodthirsty, super malicious sword. Suggest at the very least a much greater buy-in to the let's be aggressive and open in battle plan uh, than we got uh, than we get in the later version, Um, and uh, and possibly you know sort of an indication that uh, um, that uh, that again they didn't take all that much convincing and it's not really on the uh, it's not really on the shoulders of. of Turin so much, Kay says uh, this is this seems to be Turin the hapless rather than Turin the reckless maybe, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I um, that seems to me right. I mean the hapless is a word that I uh, um, that I have been thinking about a lot actually um, while reading this version. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, Tom. Uh, no, that was, uh, sorry, it was a different time. Tom Tom Hewitt was the one who was saying about uh, the. This, was raising the issue of the sketchiness of the forging, not not Tom Hillman. Sorry, I want to make sure, uh, give uh, proper credit there. Um, uh, good, good. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, yeah, and Nancy's pointing out that, you know, Turin definitely did act unjustly in being violent to he who is not Cyrus, um, even if he didn't intend his death. And you're right, Nancy, that's exactly what kind of makes it so horrible, right? Is that he, he is guilty. Not guilty of intent. I mean, what happened was far beyond his intention, and he didn't mean that, and it was... But he did do it, right? He is guilty. Uh, you know, he caused the guy's death, and although he's... Um, you know he's 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 not, he's he's let off on the murder charge um uh, uh you know but but still i that, to me that doesn't uh lessen the sense of 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 misfortune but increases the sense of misfortune because he has actual and undeniable guilt even though his intentions weren't awful um and that's worse. I mean, of course, the Beleg slaying is just the absolute worst example of that, right? I mean, he killed Beleg, right? It's, he did it! Um, and knows that he did it. And, you know, carries that grief with him, too. Um, uh, and the self-loathing, but, it, you know, it kind of, in, in this other sense, it wasn't uh, it wasn't his fault. Um, yeah. Um yeah, good. Uh, Tom Hillman says um, all occasions conspire against him, and that, that's that's I think exactly right. But all of this was lead up to uh, the the choice, the real choice that he actually makes, right? Um, his first big decision, I think, his first big decision in this story, um, and that is what he does in response to Glorin's words. Then was Turambara aflame with sorrow and with shame. This is the, the, you know, the the Glorin has just told him about his mom and sister and how awful it was that he hasn't been back there and everything, all all that stuff. Um, With sorrow and with shame for the lies of the worm were for the lies of that worm were barbed with truth and for the spell of his eyes he believed all that was said. Therefore his old desire to see once more Mavwin, his mother, and to look upon Neonori, whom he had never seen since his first days, grew hot within him. And with a heart torn with sorrow for the fate of Philevrin, he turned his feet towards the hills, seeking Dorloman, and his sword was sheathed. And truly it is said, Forsake not for anything thy friends, nor believe those who counsel thee to do so for of his abandoning of Philivran in danger that he himself could see came the very direst evil upon him and all he loved and indeed his heart was confounded and wavered and he left those places in uttermost shame and weariness notice the even handedness of the judgment of the narrator and I mean, and first of all notice the fact that the narrator is making a judgment here Right, a very explicit judgment. In fact, the narrator is interrupting the story in order to do commentary on the story. Right, and truly, it is said, forsake not for anything thy friends, nor believe those whose. Can. Right, there's like this, like the take home message. Right, we are in no doubt about how we're supposed to be interpreting what has happened. Right, um, Turin was wrong to do this but at the same time this is not mere condemnation right this is not the narrator being like and once again turin has screwed everything up right that's not what we get here at all notice that it begins and ends with engaging our sympathy on turin's behalf right his his uh emotions are being manipulated like not just like by somebody who's talking to him and bringing up things that make him upset, but but, like, he's under a spell here, right? Um, for the spell of his eyes, for the spell of the worm's eyes, he believed all that was said. Um, so, part of his decision is influenced by the fact that he believes Glorin's words because of the power of Glorin's will, because of an an actual enchantment that is placed upon him through the eyes of the worm. Um, and, and notice the nature of the enchantment, right? Notice the, the consequences of, of the worm's influence over him, and that is his desire being inflamed, growing hot within him, to see his mother and his sister again. Um, and, of course, we remember the context of this. This was his first sorrow, his separation from his mother, and his, later his, his you know better-than-a-decade-long um, anxiety over them. And what has happened with them? That is just I'm just saying over a decade just while he was in, while he was in Artenor. Um but that is what's being inflamed, right? So this thing, which we know was like the one of the greatest, you know, prior to the whole killing of Belag incident, the thing which was the greatest sorrow in his entire life, is being the thing that's being stirred up and being used against him, and that that desire, that desire to find and protect his mother and sister, and his sense of shame in not having done that, in having left that undone. Remember why he didn't... Why didn't he... he you know, When he was leaving the King's Hall anyway, right, he was, felt like he was banished. You'd think, well, he could at least have gone back, And I mean, if, he, if he's going to leave anyway, why didn't he go back and look for Mavwin then? Do you remember why? Remember why? Anybody? Pop quiz from last week. James, yes. Shame! He was ashamed to go back and face his mother because he was afraid that she would know that he had been cast out as an outlaw, right? You sent me to be raised by the king, and he accepted me with grace, and I repaid that favor uh, and uh, by murdering one of his counselors and uh, being cast out like a criminal. Uh... Into the streets, and yes, Jewel also fear fear that the elves would take it out on her too. That they were, for all he, for you know, at that point he believed that you know the, the he that he was on the lamb, right? That the, the that the, the the law was coming after him and might pursue him, and that his family might be in danger if he if he went to them. Now, of course, that's not at all true, but um, but nevertheless, he he feared that. But 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 you see how that plays in here, right? He had the chance before to go back and secure the safety, or at least check on the safety of his, wife, uh, his his mom and sister. And why didn't he do it? Because he was ashamed of himself, right? And so now, like, how much, like, doubly he's feeling this longing and this shame, right? That, like, I didn't do it when I had a chance, and the only reason that I didn't was that I was, like, feeling, like, because of my own pride, like, I, because I was feeling sorry for myself. And, like, how pitiful must that look now, in retrospect? Uh, you know, as he's present, you know, being presented in this light with the fact that he's been neglecting his mother and sister, you know, the way that Glorund is playing on him is masterful. And by the way, although Glaurung is scarier than Glorund, Glorund is like three times as clever and devious. Glaurung is stronger um, and therefore kind of scarier. But man, Glorund is a piece of work. I mean, the the. Uh, the the incredible shrewdness uh, and heartlessness of uh, Glorand's deceptions, and the, the sort of the complexity of the web of lies that he weaves over both Turin and over uh, Mavwin and Nianori, is um, is really, it's, I think it's unmatched. I I actually really prefer the dialogue of Glorund, uh to that of Glaurung. Um, just for, uh, for the, 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 the sheer, um, wittiness, Christopher Tolkien says that he thinks that, uh, by his, um, uh, you know, by the, 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 by cutting back on the speech of the dragon in later versions, he makes him very much more intimidating, which is like, I think, you know, maybe kind of true, but I, I don't know, I think, I, I really like Lauren myself, um, yeah, Patrick Summer says Glorin just exudes pure malice, uh, not merely strength and power. I agree, and he's so obviously smart. I mean, it's the it's the incredible um, intelligence and cunning. Uh, I mean, we're told that Glorond is cunning, um, but Glaurung I mean, he's, he's he's not half as cunning as Glorond was. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's amazing. Um, much more of a schemer, I agree, Lauren. Um, Anyway, okay. Um, but the, but going back to this, because I said at the beginning and the end, in between, you know, surrounding this clear condemnation of his action, right, um, we get first what I consider a very sympathetic introduction to it, right, showing how understandable it is that he would make this, and also how much he is under the influence of the dragon, and how exactly the dragon is playing on him, and then the business that we get at the end. And indeed his heart was confounded and wavered, and he left those places in uttermost shame and weariness. Um I think uh, yeah, someone was asking, Carita was asking, is he ashamed because of abandoning Philevren, or because he feels like he has abandoned his mom and sister? Both, I think. Um in the context, I think it's pointing especially to Philevren. Um uh, Again, okay, just going back up to the beginning of that sentence. And truly it is said, Forsake not for anything thy friends, nor believe those who counsel thee to do so. For of his abandoning of Phileverin in danger that he himself could see, came the very direst evil upon him and all he loved. And indeed his heart was confounded and wavered. And he left those places in uttermost shame and weariness. The context of that sentence, to me, makes it pretty clear that this is not... He's forgotten about Phileverid, and he's just, like, incredibly... feeling incredibly ashamed about his mom and sister. I do think he's feeling shame about his mother and sister. That seems to be one of the things in the top part that's really driving him. But his shame at the end, I think we're seeing the division of his own heart, right? Um, the thing that the narrator is saying... that's part of the tragedy, right? Is that it's not... that's not, like, news to Turin, exactly. He He, he sees... Um, he sees Phileverin right there in direst Evil, and remember also the fact that in this version, unlike the later ver- versions, Turin has just had that brief change of heart, right? There's nothing that, um, um, you know, if, uh, um, I guess if absence makes the heart grow fonder... Um, uh, a horde of orcs about to burn the house down around you makes the heart grow even more fonder apparently uh, <laughs> even more even, fonder even faster because there was that moment when turin um had, you know had that one where is it where he he believed that he could love feyleiran right um you know that 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 just broke through right um uh, that and think of what that breaking through means, right? I mean, again, going back to that uh, that horrible skin crawling irony of him really liking Filey, your friend right, and being like, "You're like a sister to me," you know, "You who should be my wife are like a sister to me," in obvious and dreadful anticipation of what is to come. Um, but uh, but again, we see. I mean, it's right. It's pretty obvious, right? The whole shape of the story shows. The tragedy of Turin is he's, he's got he's got he's got his sister and his wife backwards, right? Um, in other words, in that moment when he turns to Philevrin and thinks that he could love her as the orcs are about to drag him to the ground, um, that's the moment when it almost went right, right? It's like Turin's story was that close to a happy ending, and the narrator even suggests that here, right? Um... Of his abandoning of Phileverin in danger that he himself could see, came the very direst evil upon him and all he loved. It's pretty clear what this story views as the direst evil that happens, and that is the tragic incestuous relationship between himself and his sister. The narrator does seem to me to suggest there, had he stuck with Phileverin, had he tried to rescue Phileverin, the horrible things wouldn't have happened. Now he probably would have died, but that wouldn't have been a horrible thing. Again, like dying while the orcs sack the house around you is a good death, right? We're sort of back into Boromir territory now. Um, if um, if that's uh, if that's if that's the way that he goes, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So. So again, it's 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 very interesting to me that in this moment where we see him making a choice, and it is emphasized as a choice and emphasized as the wrong choice, yet still we have we're given all of these promptings um, to view him sympathetically, and to see this as not uh, not recklessness, Faye, as you suggested, but haplessness, right? Um, look at what comes of this. I two more passages I want to follow this one up with. Um, this is when he gets back up to dorloman Loman. Um, this is another passage that I think is just fascinating to compare, you know, to sort of contrast with the later Turin. Um, this is when he so he's gotten back to to Dor-Loman and said, uh, you know, said that he's looking, you know, he's he's talking to people and saying he's looking for his mom and sister, and and uh, they they're, they can't believe that anybody made it across the borders, right? Then Turambar was in perplexity at this, and he doubted the deceit of the dragon's words. Yet he went now in hope to the dwelling of men and the house of his mother. And coming upon homesteads of men, he was easily directed thither. Now men looked strangely at his questioning and indeed they had reason yet were such as he sorry yet were such as he spoke to in great awe and wonder at him and shrank back from speech with him for his garb was of the wild woods and his hair was long and his face haggard and drawn as with unquenchable sorrows and therein burnt fiercely his dark eyes beneath his dark brows a collar of fine gold he wore and his mighty sword was at his side and men marveled much at him and did any dare to question him, he named himself Turambar, son of the weary forest. And that seemed but the more strange to them. Um, what's emphasized about him? One thing that I think is fascinating about this moment is that in the... Um, yeah, no, Arthur, that's not Tevildo's lost collar. Uh, <laughs> Tevildo hasn't lost his collar yet. Um, uh, but anyway... Um, uh, 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 we get that description of him at this moment, right? What do we see? What do we see in this dis- in this description? What what is emphasized here about Turin? When the when the people of Dorloman of Dor- Dor- look at him, what do they see? What does this passage tell us that they see? Good, yeah, James that's, uh, the 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 that's the very simplest thing right that we have to sort of reconcile his wild looks in the contrast with his clothing james says um on the one hand he looks like a vagabond from the wilderness right um his garb was of the wild woods and i don't think this means like i'm dressed like robin hood right but rather means like i'm dressed in rags um like a like a like a wanderer who who can't doesn't have access to any clothing right so He's, he's dressed in rags and his hair is long uh, and you know the dude whose name is not Syros would be I'm sure simply appalled at his coiffure right um, uh, and his face is haggard and drawn and his eyes burn fiercely but as James points out we have the contrast right um, he's got this gold collar and this mighty sword at his side Both of which, and I don't think, by the way, the mighty sword at his side is like a little bit scary. But even more, I think in the context of that sentence, I think the primary emphasis is that it's a sign of wealth. Um, Remember that um, in older cultures like this, like in old Anglo-Saxon or old Norse culture, your sword is the you know heirloom that's passed down from father to son. If you have a great and mighty sword, that's a sign of st- of, of 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 stature. Uh, you know, probably of good family. Um, that you know, it's wealth. I mean, if you've got a really good sword, that's um, uh, that's a, a really uh, I mean, it says a great deal about you um, if you have a mighty sword. So it, you know, so the gold collar and the mighty sword both say the same thing. Like, whoa! On the one hand, <clears throat> you know, those two things. You know, if I met somebody else who was wearing a gold collar and, and a sword like that, I would guess, you know, he was probably a king or something. Um, and so it doesn't fit with the rags. This, by the way, is one of the one of the really quite silly things about. Um, a lot of medieval films, but Peter Jackson's films do this all the time. Like, in the Lord of the Rings films, when the Rohirrim are all coming together and, like, handing out swords, they're always doing that. Like, it's the sword distribution center, right? it's not how, you know, an Anglo-Saxon-esque culture would be handling swords. Um, like, they don't have them, and, uh, and and like the king has, you know, hundreds of them to give away, Um it's it's kind of uh it's kind of ridiculous, yes, uh, uh, Tolkien uses the word weapon take but that's not what it, you take your weapons to it you don't you don't go there in order to be to, to have uh, weapons uh, distributed to you. Um, take your weapon and get over here is what it means um, but anyway uh, uh, so so anyway, so the point is they don't know what to do with this guy right. And it's, they don't know how to understand him. And then he says who he is, right? Uh, My name is Master of Doom, Son of the Weary Forest. And that seemed but the more strange to them. Yeah, yeah, I bet it did. Um, uh, Sarah asks, why don't they assume he is a robber? A really good question, right? I mean, th- th- there is a way in which, like, a vagabond from the woods might have a gold collar and a really nice sword, and that's if he looted it off the corpse of a rich guy that he killed, right? Conceivably. But yet they don't seem to respond to him that way. They don't seem to classify him as uh, as as dangerous vagabond. Um, but rather... Uh, but, and I don't know, th- there seems to be, again, sort of something about him... Um, what we have is men marveling much at him I don't think that that means that they're they're not afraid of him I mean they uh, um, uh, see, men marveled much at him and did any dare to question him suggesting that many of them did not indeed dare to question him so there's clearly some intimidation but again it's not like you know rumors that he's a, that he's a highwayman are following him right um, because there seems to be something else about him. Um, that is one category in which both his rags and his riches um, would simultaneously fit. Well, maybe probably a highwayman would steal the nice clothes that that rich man probably had also. But anyway, whatever. Um, uh, maybe he's a crazy highwayman. Um, but um, but nevertheless, there's something you know, notice also how that description of with his face, his face is haggard and drawn as with unquenchable sorrows. Remember also, the cultural context, right? The sort of political context um, of the people of Dorloman, right? They're a conquered people um, who are living in what Melko has made basically into a very large ghetto into which the men are being cooped. Um, and that's why they're kind of shocked when they hear, when he's like, yeah, I came from outside, and I'm wondering if anybody left. And they're like, dude, what the heck are you talking about? Um, we can't leave. Uh, so uh, so that, that is to say, although you're right, Sarah, that robber or highwayman or, you know, whatever, is one interpretation that would fit a guy who has both rags and riches, they're a conquered people, right? And so, when you are being oppressed, people who are on, you know, uh, somebody who is on the run is not necessarily, uh, you know, might possibly be on your side. Um, And it seems that his uh, haggard and drawn-as-with-unquenchable-sorrow's face um, seems to perhaps influence them um, to some extent as well. Um, But, uh, anyway, okay. So, but 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 here the thing I the thing I notice his name here right, and notice the significance. We've already talked about how late Turin names himself all the time, right? He's already by this time in his life. Late Turin has already given himself like five different names. Um, the Turin in this story only gives himself one name, Turinbar. Right? He takes that name on purpose. Um, but we were looking last time at the the contrast between how he takes that name for himself in this story versus later on, you know, later on it's an act of defiance, right? I have won, I have conquered fate, and so I shall call myself Turambar. And in the earlier version, where he names himself Turambar as basically an indication of his choice to die, right? Where he's, he's going to escape his fate in the only way that he knows how um, by attempting to compel... Glorin to kill himself or to kill him uh attempting to get uh, Glorin to kill himself would be a pretty neat trick but um uh but yeah so he, he's he's basically trying to die in order to escape uh his fate um so even that is is not nearly it's it's a sign of despair not um not not arrogance here you know it, it's possible to look at this passage and say well now that uh now that old turin um uh, is, you know, now that early Turin, I should say, now that early Turin is uh, uh, getting the hang of naming himself, you know, he's really taken off with it, right? Now this is now the second name he's given himself in, in like, four pages. But, but I don't think so, right? Um, Son of the Weary Forest, this is not... It's not really about him, exactly. Um, Son of the Weary Forest is just more like a description of where he came. Again, you think of the names that that later Turin gives himself, and they're all about him, right? He's describing himself. I am Nathan the Wronged. Um, I am uh, Agarwine, son of Umarth, right? I, no, he doesn't name himself the, el- the, uh, the Elfman, but, uh, you know, the, the Um These are all names which are like... This, and then he names himself, when he names himself Wild Man of the Woods, right? He names himself woodwoes When he names himself Turinbar, right? These are all things where he's fundamentally saying, like, this is me. Like, I am describing the most important thing about myself. That's not what what Turinbar is doing here. This is not what early Turin does, right? He's like, son of the weary forest, meaning I'm a wanderer. I have no home right? Remember the shame that he's feeling, the despair that he's feeling, the desolation that he, the guy, he is the guy who has lost everything again and again and again, and now he's just, he's just the son of the weary forest. Um, In this sense, this is not about him, right? He's much less focused on himself. He thinks less of himself than the later Turin thinks, Um, And that, again, is another thing which really has a pretty strong influence, I know, on my own reaction to him uh, when reading this story. Another interesting moment, following up on that choice that he made, is um, Iren's judgment when he kills Broda. "'But she, hearing the tale, said, "'Nay, grieve not for me, son of Uren, but for thyself. "'For my lord was a hard lord and cruel and unjust, and men might say somewhat in thy defense.' Yet, behold, thou hast slain him now at his board, being his guest, and Orlin thou hast slain, who is of thy mother's kin, and what shall be thy doom? At those words some were silent, and many shouted, Death! But Irin said that it was not wholly in accord with the laws of that place. For, said she, Brada was slain wrongfully, yet just was the wrath of the slayer, and Orlin too did he slay in defence, though it were in the hall of a feast. Yet now I fear that this man must get him swiftly from among us, nor ever set foot upon these lands again, else shall any man slay him. But those lands and goods that were Urin's shall us kin hold, save only do Mavwin and Nianori return ever from their wandering. Yet even so may Turin son of Urin inherit nor part nor parcel of them ever." Now this doom seemed just to all save Turambar, and they marvelled at the equity of Iron, whose lord lay, lay slain, and they guessed not at the horror of her life aforetime with that man. But Turambar cast his sword upon the floor, and bade them slay him. Yet they would not for the words of Iron, whom they loved, and Iron suffered it not for the love of Mavwin, hoping yet to join those twain mother and son in happiness.' and her doom she had made to satisfy men's anger and save Turin from death. Um, okay. Now, on the one hand... Now I, 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 too, marvel at the equity of Iron in her judgment here. Um, This is an immensely fair and even-handed judgment. Um, notice how she is, on the one hand, recognizing... What Turin did was really wrong. And, by the way, now following up on the really bad decision that he did make in going, in, in you know, leaving Filever and coming up here, he, this has led to his now committing his first genuinely wicked act. Uh, this is the first really bad thing. I mean, okay, yeah, like, he killed a guy. He killed uh, the dude whose name is not Cyrus, But, That was an accident, right? He attacked him. He didn't mean to come. I mean, we've been over that. This is different from that, right? I mean, he stands up and murders this guy in his own hall. And as uh, as Iron points out, and is a huge deal, he doesn't just kill him on purpose meaningful well to kill him, he kills him at his own board as a as host, right? He, he's welcomed Turin in, and he has given him food at his board, and Turin rises up and kills him in his own hall. That's really bad. But, at the same time, Brada... His wrath—that is, Turin's wrath against Brada—was just. Broda had done him a wrong, and uh, and you know, so so, you know, Iron is saying is willing to say we can understand why he did this. I'm going to punish him, but not with death, because his wrath uh, his wrath was just. Did Brada you know was the killing of Brada a bad thing? Yes. Did Brada deserve what he got? Yes, yes, he probably did And Iron is like, don't even get me started on how much this loser deserved what he got, right? Uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, you guys don't even know how much this guy deserved it. Um, so, so she's, you know, was 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 the killing, you know, was 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 the wrath of Turin justified? Yes, was his action accepted It was absolutely not acceptable. It was, a, it was a very wrong thing to do. It was a terrible thing to do. But since. There was a uh, cause, you know, there there was a uh, 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 very understandable cause for his wrath. He's still going to be punished. We're going to banish him, right? And then what she does with the property, I mean, this is brilliant, right? Uren's property is going to be given to the kin of Broda, right? Why? Wereguild, right? Remember, some are drawing their swords and wanting to kill Turin right there. Well, hey, um, we're going we're gonna to pay a wereguild to the family of Broda, in giving them rightful claim now uh to Urin's wealth, you know to to or rather to what little wealth urin had uh, had left or Mavwin um was still holding um but if Mavrin and Neonori come back, the kinsmen of Brada have to give it back up to her, and they can't complain that the we Were- Were- guild is being taken away because it was wrongfully seized. From Mavwin in the first place, and so therefore it is only a just restitution of the crime uh, for for the crime that Brada himself had made. Um, so again, you know, it's just like you know, so you, you know, you kinsmen of Brada can't can't. You know be complaining that justice wasn't done for you for the death of your kinsman, Broda, because you're being paid a wear guild, and if that wear guild gets taken away later, later on, you have no ground on which to stand because that money was unlawfully taken by Broda in the first po- place, and it is a just sentence against him and his kin that that money that they should not be allowed to keep uh that but But Turin is not going to be able to inherit any of it under any circumstances. Right. Um, Lest the killers of Brada then say, oh, sure, let's give the Guild for our dead kinsman back to his murderer. We're not having that. Right. Um, So no, no, no. None of it goes to the murderer. I mean, it is um, uh, it is a an amazingly uh, uh, I mean, I just I, I I think that the the cunning of this. Uh Nancy uh, Fosberg says that uh, uh Iron is maybe the most admirable person in this story. You know, Nancy I I, I think I might um uh, I might uh I might disagree. Or I might not disagree. I, I she is uh she is awesome. I love Iron in this story. Um and uh and but again notice how we're getting a very similar thing, sort of, from Iron here. This is this is a moment of judgment. I mean, she's literally sitting in judgment on Turin at this point, right? So, so again, it's, it's, it seems a really interesting moment to look at for the sake of getting some cues. How is this story prompting us to judge Turin, right? Um, uh, we, clearly, we should be able to get some kind of a sense, some kind of an indication of... How you know how we're supposed to be looking at Turin um, from how he's judged here, and how is he judged here? Very even-handedly, right? On the you know he is what he has done wrong is being plainly acknowledged, but uh, what has provoked him to it is given sympathy, right? There are consequences we recognize consequences for what he does and has he has brought many of these negative consequences on himself through his own action but yet mercy is shown to him and ultimately his own best interest is being sought as Iron is trying, uh, desires in the end uh, to make him uh, to make him happy um uh Sarah King asks a great question. Uh, how does she have the authority to do this? Does she get to choose because she's brought his wife and therefore a prominent person, or because she's the injured party? Both, Sarah, but I think especially the latter. Um, she, you know, uh, as... Um, she obviously has the respect of the people, or they would just tell her to shut up and wouldn't listen to her at all. Um, but, nevertheless, she she clearly has, in a sense, if not political authority, at the very least, moral high ground because she is the the primarily injured party um and uh, but she is also sort of sitting in the place of brada you know brada is the one who is who is ruling thereabouts and his widow now is laying down the law and they respect it right they respect what she says um so that's um that's i think uh um pretty cool actually um but, uh, okay, so, so again, we get this really even handed response uh, to Turin, um, both sort of condemnation and also sympathy. Let's turn now and look at uh, Mavwin and Nianori. Um I'm not sure how to characterize the difference between Mavwin and Morwin. In between and between Neonori and um both of them strike me as... Well, Mavwyn is still proud, but she seems less... I don't know, less haughty, less dignified than Morwin. Um, less sort of on her own dignity. Um, and... Uh, um, Neonor Or Nian... Neonori is more she's very headstrong in uh, uh, in in the later version um, and strong-willed, but seems to me even more willful and independent um, than the Neonor of the later story. Um, notice the difference between um, the way in which the trip out to go visit the dragon um, is initiated in these two versions, right? M- Morwen in the later version just basically says, I'm going to go and find out what happened to my son. Y'all can come with me if you want, right? but I'm I'm going to go do this, and Thingol is like, let's uh, send her an escort and try to keep her safe, and maybe even convince her not to do this. Um, Mavwen basically manipulates Tinwellent into thinking this is a good idea, right, into basically going on his own um, uh, to go fight the dragon. Um, and that's a much more significant accomplishment. Um, and Neonor, the later Neonor, is sort of stubborn in going along with them. Neonori shows even more um, even more feistiness, I think. Uh, and she... Uh, I love the way in which she actually successfully defies the dragon. Um, and and at least briefly, breaks his enchantment. Um, she momentarily overcomes his will. We hear in the later story that Neonor struggled against the will of the dragon, but in the end she wasn't able to do anything. Glorin still wins uh, in his battle of wills with Neonori in the earlier version, but she does a little better, uh, uh, and I and that seems to me interesting, and therefore the more tragic that it's uh, her words that lead Glorund to have his terrible, awful idea of what to do to her. Um. Now, um. I, that's an, an interesting way to say it. Nick, Nick Morazzo says that uh, the, the Mavwin in this story is less grim than Morwin in the later version. That seems to me exactly right, Nick. Um, she's more sorrowful, but less grim. Um, I'll, I'll buy that distinction. Um, one of my favorite passages of the new story, of the, of the older version, the early version of the story, Right after Neonori is taken by the dragon's enchantment, um, we get this sort of Neonori's point-of-view description as she runs through the woods. Now, on a time in an opening in the woods, she descried a campment, as it were, of men. And creeping nigh by reason of hunger to espy it, she saw that they were creatures of a squat and unlovely stature that dwelt there. And most evil faces had they, and their voices and their laughter was as the clash of stone and metal, Armed they were with curved swords and bows of horn, and she was possessed with fear as she looked upon them, although she knew not that they were orcs, for never had she seen those evil ones before. Now did she turn and flee, but was espied, and one let fly a shaft at her, that quivered suddenly in a tree beside her as she ran, and others, seeing that it was a woman young and fair, gave chase, whooping and calling hideously. Now Neonore ran as best she might for the density of the wood, but soon soon was she spent, and capture and dread thraldom was very near, when one came clashing through the woods as though in answer to her lamentable cries. Wild and black was his hair, yet streaked with grey, and his face was pale and marked as with deep sorrows of the past, and in his hand he bare a great sword, whereof all but the very edge was black." I love this description. Um first of all, by the way, um this is one of the very few descriptions of orcs that we get. Like ever. Um, uh Tolkien describes orcs shockingly seldom, actually. Um, but um in the Silmarillion, almost never. So this is uh this is and, and certainly one of the very earliest descriptions we've heard about orcs but we've never really seen them um so um uh so this it's a fascinating passage even if only for that reason for the reason but uh there are two things that she sees right which we get described to us as if we too didn't know them didn't know what they were the orcs and turin right um and you know they're not exactly the same. Um, But again, we sort of were invited to see them as she sees them. Not understanding what either one of them are. Um, Yeah, Nick says, if the text didn't name them orcs, they may have been confused with dwarves. Yeah, Nick, when I was... um, I mean, I remember reading this for the first time and thinking they were dwarves, especially because they use the word unlovely, right? Creatures of a squat and unlovely stature. Um, Unlovely is the word that's used, of course, in the published Silmarillion to describe the Nalgrim, the dwarves, when they first emerge um, and are are met by the elves in the Silmarillion. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, so yeah, like squat and unlovely, I was like, oh, she met dwarves. That's kind of random, right? No, no, actually, they're orcs. Um, Orcs and dwarves are not unlike one another. Um, Keep in mind two things. First off, the history, the background, says dwarves are generally evil. Um, That is, the Norse background, which is the place where we seem to be living here, primarily, um, in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Dwarves are bad guys almost universally. Um, the sense of like the good dwarves, the noble dwarves, who are maybe misunderstood by the elves is a later thing. In fact, it's one of the most remarkable shifts in Tolkien's entire literary career. The appearance of the good dwarves, the not-wicked dwarves, in Bilbo Baggins' parlor, um, you know, when, when that happens... In like around 1930, it they come out of the blue. D- 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 dwarves had always been explicitly categorized with orcs and other servants of Melko in these early um, in these early stories. Um, it uh, yeah, Yana was just pointing this out too. Um, it, so so the, the idea that the dwarves would be prime would be orc-like and primarily evil in the early stories that's not the sho- I mean it, it's sort of a shock. From the perspective of later Tolkien writings, and for you know people who only know the Lord of the Rings and are thinking about Gimli all the time, but it, it, it's the good dwarves that are a shock as far as a departure from uh, kind of folklore tradition in that way. Um, uh, uh, let's see, uh, is B. Scrivener? Is it Brandon? I'm trying to remember your first name, but anyway, uh, uh, Mr. Scrivener says, uh, "Is it the first appearance in literature of good dwarves?" No. Um, no, there had been good dwarves before. I mean, uh, (laughs) don't let's forget that at almost exactly the same time, uh, The Hobbit was being released, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was also being released by Walt Disney. Um, so, friendly dwarves were in the air at that point, um, uh, which actually Tolkien strongly disliked. Um, yeah, Nancy, they were always within months of each other, um, uh... It was, a, it was a big deal, um, and I've told this story before, but just pick, try to picture to yourself C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien went to Snow White and the Seven Dwarves together I would have loved to sit with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien watching uh, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in the theater um, but anyway, yeah, yeah um, anyway, so um, uh, okay uh, and I don't know. Created? Did they throw popcorn? No idea. Um, but uh, neither one of them were big Disney fans uh, in general, so I don't think he, I, I, I doubt they neither of them really liked it. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yes, uh, yeah, Nick, I think that he it was one of the reasons that he was sort of especially grumpy about Disney because uh, it's not just that the stories came out at the same time, but Walt Disney from the very beginning. Um, was really, really good at merchandising. Um, And, um, you know, the whole, like, being flooded with, you know, promotional merchandise and uh, knick-knacks and things related to a film, it's not a modern phenomenon. Disney did that. Um, And Tolkien commented upon, like, the fact that when The Hobbit was being released, like, you know, America and Europe alike were just, like, awash in tacky little you know, Doc and Dopey the Dwarf um, figurines and things, which his daughter Priscilla kind of liked. And, um, and I think that, so, it was kind of especially frustrating, you know, that here he was trying to tell this story about, you know, Thor and Oakenshield and company, and like, the whole world is awash in these, um, Disney dwarves. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's uh, uh, material for a for a for a for a different lecture but just a little context on dwarves but that's a diver that's a digression from her description of orcs which are not in fact dwarves but just look like them so anyway uh moving on um let's uh uh let's go back to um Oh, wait, sorry, okay, w- one more thing about the dwarves. Diana says, it's fair to remember that Disney didn't write the original story, it already existed, um, and, uh, what, and what Tolkien disliked was what he considered the rape of the story. Yeah, it, absolutely, absolutely, and you know, there are lots of dwarves in, uh, in 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 fairy tales. I mean, you read The Brothers Grimm and you'll find lots of dwarves, but most of them are are, you would be unwise to trust a dwarf who came up to you and told you something. Um, usually they're not... Usually, a dwarf who comes up to you in a fairy tale and tells you to do something does not have your best interest at heart. It's not a universal law, but, uh, um, you should, uh, you would be better advised to, um, um, you know, keep your eyes open and feel for your hatchet, as Mr. Beaver would say in Narnia. Um, but anyway, uh, Back to Nianori here. Okay, so here she is, and she sees the orcs, and we see them too, as if for the first time. She sees them not even understanding what they are. Um, she's approaching stealthily, hoping to get to find food somehow, and instead she finds danger. And then this guy, who comes as if in um, response to her lamentable cry, you know, as though an answer to her lamentable cries comes clashing through the woods and he seems really great, right? Although we see, again, in the second physical description that we get of him those same marks of sorrow. Um, Arthur, that is a fascinating study, isn't it? Arthur is suggesting contrasting this meeting to that between Baron and Tenuvio. Um Yeah, yeah. Um, it's... Um, it is, I, I, I think there are lots of things that we could say about that. Um, that would be a really neat uh, kind of study, actually. Um, because we get these two very significant meetings in the woods. Um, anyway, uh, her name. And again, what I want to focus on here, look at the, the sort of cues that we as readers receive here. How are we supposed to be feeling about this? How is this, what is this story, how is this story working on us? Then sat Nianori upon a stone, and for weariness and the lessened strain of fear, sobs shook her, and she could not speak. But her rescuer stood beside her a while, and marveled at her fairness, and that she wandered thus lonely in the woods. And at length he said, O sweet maiden of the woods, whence comest thou, and what may be thy name? Nay, these things I know not, said she, yet methinks I stray very far from my home and folk, and many very evil things have fallen upon me, in what what way, whereof not but a cloud hangs upon my memory, sorry, have fallen upon me in that way, whereof not but a cloud hangs upon my memory. Nay, whence I am, or whither I go, I know not. And she wept afresh. But that man spake, saying, Then behold, I will call thee Niniel." for little one or little one of tears and thereat she raised her face towards his and it was very sweet though marred with weeping and she said with a look of wonderment nay not ninio not niniel yet more might she not remember and her face filled with distress so that she cried nay who art thou warrior of the woods why troublest thou me turambar am i called said he And no home nor kindred have I, nor any past to think on, but I wander forever. And again at that name, that maiden's wonder stirred. Okay, what do we see here? What does the story emphasize? And here, this is a moment where I actively want to forget the later version. I want to really just focus in here. Uh, there are similarities and differences we can point out. Christopher Tolkien is great at pointing out the similarities and the differences. He doesn't do much with those, though. Um, uh, I, I keep sort of wishing he would do more than just point out the similarities and differences. Those we can notice for ourselves. Um, but what do you think is interesting about those? Um, but anyway, let's let's look at this here. What What do we see... Good. James is pointing out how neither of them have any past. Yes, good. Notice the parallel between the two of them, right? Um, uh, Many very evil things have fallen upon me in that way, whereof not but a cloud hangs upon my memory. Um, Turin himself could speak almost exactly those same words, right? It's not that he doesn't remember them, but... The idea, you know, many evil things have fallen upon him and, uh, and, and, you know, and, and a cloud hangs upon, you know, the time behind him, his memory of the time behind him, you know, that, um, you could definitely, you could definitely say that, um, of, of Turin. Um, so yes, the parallels between them are definitely, um, are definitely interesting, um, good, James points out that they're both called by names that are not their own and Turin is the author of both of them Turin is the one who has given both of those names, yes, I agree um I agree um uh, I agree, Sarah it is interesting that she can speak in this version Um, she's not simply inarticulate and notice what she says right, um When he says, I will call thee niniel, or little one of tears, she says, nay, not ninio, not ninio. How do we take that? How do we take that? What does that mean? It works in a couple different ways, right? Yes, Nancy, it does sound almost like she realizes that this isn't her own name, right? Yes. Yes. Um, good, good. And Bartleby. Okay. That was close. Um, Bartleby says, uh, that she doesn't want to be thought of that way. Yes. Yes. She doesn't identify with that name. Uh, Brandon says, yes. But why not? This is, to me, the most painful thing here, right? On the one hand... I don't want to accuse Nianori of being flirtatious here. That seems inappropriate. Especially since she's all full of distress and crying and stuff. But there's that sense of... But I'm not the one of tears, right? I've been rescued. And there's that first sort of recognition of... It's the thing which is, I think, explicitly articulated in the... The thing which is being explicitly articulated in the later version of the story, that she felt like one who had found something that she had sought, but she didn't know what it was, right? Um, that is to say, simultaneously, her saying, not ninio not Neneo, seems to point in two different directions. On the one hand, her near recognition of the name, saying no, that's not quite um, that's not quite it. Right? Um, It's like my name, but it's not the right name. I'm not Nini, But it's also, no, I'm not the one of tears. Right? Um, I'm the one who maybe has found joy. Right? Um, And it's awful <laughs> awful uh to to for us to read this and we know what's going on um and we can see the way that both of the you know that that it that it goes even again her own words who art thou warrior of the woods why troublest thou me right um why are you why are you taking trouble over me why are you uh you know why, why are you but also like why There's something about you that troubles me. And he names himself Turambar. And no home nor kindred have I nor any past to think on, but I wandered forever. Yeah, just like her, right? And again at that name, that maiden's wonder stirred. Why troublest thou me? I am troubled by you. Seems to be part of which, and I don't know why, I'm troubled by you. Um... But she is in wonder at him, and again the, the, two-pronged nature of her wonder, I find extremely, um. Painful. Yana um, says one wonders if Turin had said, "I am Turin, son of Urin," she might not have remembered something. I agree, Yana. Even the mere fact that she has no speech at all in the later version suggests to me that, like the, the power of of Glaurung over her is more absolute. Um, Than then Gloron's is over Neonori in this version. Um, I too wonder that, Yana. And so again, we see his changing of his name to Turimbar leads to perhaps, um, you know, the, the sort of the perpetuation at least of this misunderstanding, of this tragic misunderstanding. But it's not even that that's simply a punishment for him for taking this new name. Right. Remember, the circumstances under which he took this new name was in despair. Right, seeking death, and uh, and and as a result, now it's oh anyway, it's awful. Um. Uh. But it gets so much more painful. Now, as the days passed, Turambar grew to love Ninio very greatly indeed, and all the folk beside loved her for her great loveliness and sweetness. Yet was she ever half sorrowful and often distraught of mind, as one that seeks for something mislaid that that soon she must discover. So that folk said, Would that the Valar would lift this spell that lies upon Ninio! (laughs) twist, twist, they have some sense that is, now. they they mean that metaphorically, right, that there's there's something wrong with her, there's some, there's some, it's like there's a spell on her, right, oh, if only, if only somebody would lift that. Nonetheless, for the most part, she was happy indeed among the folk, and in the house of Bethos, and each day she grew ever fairer, and Tamar Lanefoot, who was held of little account, loved her, though in vain now came days when life was once, once more seemed to contain joy to Turimpar. Oh no, that's a terrible sign. And the bitterness of the past grew dim and far away, almost like this cloud of forgetfulness is over him. And a fresh love was in his heart. He, to who, 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 who had such a hard time winning love, remember? Then did he think to put his fate forever from him, and live out his life there in the woodland homes with children about him. And looking upon Ninio, he desired to wed her. Turambar, who took his name in a fey mood, seeking death, right, has now decided, wait a second, maybe there's hope, right? Maybe I can cling to life instead of death. Maybe I can escape my fate and live, right? Um, and, and, you know, like that. that instead of seeking death which he still has almost been doing, it seems, you know, I mean, even just the fact that we get him, like, running on his own through the woods with his sword after the orcs, one on however many there were in those, in that camp, suggests he still hasn't entirely stopped seeking death, right? Um, but now, no, now he's going to seek life, right? Children, rather than suicide, um... and looking upon Nino he desired to win her then did he often press his suit with her yet though he was a man of valiance and renown she delayed him saying nor yea nor no yet herself she knew not why for it seemed to her heart that she loved him deeply fearing for him were he away and knowing happiness when he was nigh I don't know why I want to say no to him cause I know that I love him um, and even, again, this is... Notice how the whole thing is littered with things which should be clues even to them, right? And again, it's, to me, the worst thing about the incest of Turin and Nianori is that, once again, it's like the manslaughter of the dude who isn't Syros, uh in Artanor, right? On the one hand, it's not his fault. But on the other hand... He did it, right? Um, with the incest, there are lots of clues that they have that something is not right. Um, lots of reasons that they might be suspicious, maybe. I mean, who would suspect it, right? I mean, the chances of him meeting his own sister uh, that he's either never met or... Hasn't seen since she was a baby. Remember, Tolkien seems to be kind of uncertain about the you know, kind of waffling on that point as he's writing the story. Hasn't really decided about whether that, you know, which one of those things it should be. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stephanie says, it's as if they both continually recognize the familial connection they have to one another but cannot fully realize it. Absolutely, Stephanie. I mean, Stephanie, you notice the the horrible echo, like, the grief that he had in his childhood of separation with his family, and now he experiences joy, right? Joy and love and life because he's reunited with his family. But he doesn't... So the moment when he has finally achieved the hope that he has held since he was a little boy that he would one day be reunited with his family has come to pass and when it comes to pass it's the most awful horrible thing that has ever happened to him i mean it's just awful um uh yeah yeah yeah, Yana uh, says, uh, "I know the incest is horrible, but in a way, their love seems very true, which in a way makes it worse. But love in itself isn't inherently bad, exactly, exactly, Yana. It's both, right? I mean, neither one of them are doing a wicked thing here, right? And 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 it's it is lovely, and it's very sweet, but the more awful." For that reason, I mean, Sarah. Thinking back to what Sarah King was saying um, uh, before, that it's you know their meeting is really sweet and their relation, you know, the relationship is sort of you know charming, but it's you know so close and yet no, um, yeah. Yeah. Greta asks, don't they look alike or something? Um, Yeah, you know, I'm sure it's one of those things that in retrospect, you know, it's really obvious. But but also don't forget, like, you know, Turin's face has really changed, right? He's got that, like, shrunken, haunted look and the graying hair. Even the graying hair, right, would probably deceive her into thinking that he's older than he is, right? So she wouldn't, you know, even if she remembered that she had a brother who was, like, 12 years older than she, uh, or no, not even... He's what is he like? Uh, five years old, either seven or five years old. Because he's isn't he seven when he weaves to Am I remembering that right? Um, and she's either two or zero when he weaves again, depending on which way it falls out. Whether he's ever met her, but yeah, seven, right? So, um, so but he's got gray hair, right? He looks much older, much more than seven years older than she is. So even if she did remember that, you know, um, and I go to Sarah points out they don't have the same. They don't have the same hair color, it seems, so there's some evidence that they don't look alike, that he takes after their mother and she takes after their father. Um, But anyway, let's keep pouring on the pain. Seeing, therefore, the love of their new chief for Ninio, and thinking they knew that she loved him also in return, those men began to say how they would leave see their lord wed, and that it was folly to delay for no good cause. But this word came to the ears of Niniel, and at length she consented to be the wife of Turambar, and all were feigned thereat. and imagine how much they regretted that later on. A goodly feast was made, and there was song and mirth, and Niniel became lady of the woodland rangers, and dwelt thereafter in Turambar's house. There great was their happiness, though there lay at times a chill foreboding upon Niniel's heart, but Turambar was in joy and said in his heart, 'Twas well that I did name myself Turinbar." For lo, I have overcome the doom of evil that was woven about my feet." Again, notice how much less arrogant he is than the later Turin, right? He's just like, hooray! Look, look at me! I'm living happily ever after! Wow! I never thought it would happen to me. I've, I've, I've overcome the doom. It was well that I named myself bar because I'm living the dream here, right? Oh, so, just painful. The past he laid aside, and to Niniel he spoke not over much of bygone things, save of his father and mother and the sister he had not seen. But always was Niniel troubled at such talk, and he knew not why. But again, all of these, like, hints and things that are just going to seem incredible tolerably painful in retrospect, but of his flight from the halls of Tinueland and the death of Beleg, and of his seeking back to Hisalome, he said never a word, and and the thought of of Philevrin lay locked in his deepest heart, well nigh forgotten. Not ever might Neniel tell him of her days before, and did he ask her, distress was written on her face, as though he troubled the surface of dark dreams, and he grieved at times thereat, but it weighed not much upon him. Even that. Maybe... Gosh, in retrospect, I really should have pushed maybe a little bit harder on those dark dreams and like what was beneath the surface and maybe should have taken a little bit more seriously uh, her being troubled when I talk about mom and sister and... um, Man. um, The later story is awful. And depressing, but I don't think there is anything in the later story to rival the terrible, dramatic, just the crushing, soul-destroying, dramatic irony of these passages in this early version. Because we have more sympathy for Turin, because he's a much nicer guy who just has a, a... you know, just has it bad. You know, just has just gets dealt like a really really horrible hand um, and um, uh, just you know, wow um, then uh, let's look at uh, jumping ahead here to, um, to their deaths um, we're starting to run out of time Uh, I want to get to the... uh, But I'm determined to get through their suicides, and what's more, address more broadly the suicide issue. By the suicide issue, what I mean is, there are a lot of people who read the story and are like, whoa, like, um, seriously? Like, the stories end with suicide? Like, isn't that kind of not okay? You know? I mean... uh, um, uh, like you know, I thought Tolkien was a Catholic. Like, is is he? Is he? He's not. Is he actually like heroizing suicide here? That doesn't seem to. Mean, would he do that? That doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, a lot of people have a hard time kind of putting those two things together. Um, and I wanna, I wanna sort of. I want to address that generally and what's more as you will have noticed the story itself addresses that the early version of this story this version addresses it very much more directly than the later than the later versions do and I think that that's um, um I, I think that that's, uh, that's really interesting and we'll definitely get to that <laughs> Arthur Arthur Harrow says uh, he's quoting me, let's jump ahead to their deaths is there any more succinct comment on the story of Turin? yeah, there's always, there's always so much crushing dramatic irony I can get through before I just have to leap uh, forward to the suicide uh, as a kind of relief uh, from the rest of the story uh, that is a kind of a commentary <laughs> I, I agree on the story anyway, okay Here's Nianori. There did she stay her feet, and remember this is over the silver bowl where she had had a terrible misgiving before, but she wasn't quite sure why. Right, um, and standing spake as to herself, "O waters of the forest, whither do ye go? Wilt thou take Nianori, Nianori, daughter of Urin, child of woe? O ye white foams, would that ye might lave me clean." But deep, deep must be the waters that would wash my memory of this nameless curse. O bear me hence, far, far away, where are the waters of the unremembering sea? O waters of the forest, whither do ye go? Then, ceasing suddenly, she cast herself over the fall's brink and perished where it foams about the rocks below. But at that moment the sun rose above the trees and light fell upon the waters and the waters roared unheeding above the death of Nianori. Um, yes, Karita, I too was thinking um, uh, You know, I shall be lady of the stream um, I too was thinking of silverweed, Arthur uh, also yes, it does sound like she's quoting silverweed but she's not, sorry, Watership Down reference for those of you who didn't do the Watership Down class with us um, it does sound very much like the lyrics of one of the poems um, uh, in, in Watership Down, but anyway bygones, okay what's she saying? what's she saying to the waters? what do we hear in her final words? What is the final state of Nianori as she comes to... Well, first, she heaps upon us a little bit more bitter twisting of the dramatic irony, right? Um, Her naming of herself, right? Wilt thou take Nianori? Nianori, daughter of Urin, child of woe. She declares her true name, Nianori. And then you notice what she adds... But really, you know, a better name for me would be Maiden of Tears. That's really what my (laughs) name would be. Now she's like, yes, Nini L. Yes, Nini L. Oh, awful. Uh, And then, like, deep, deep must be the waters that would wash my memory of this nameless curse. Oh, for amnesia right now, right? Oh, man. Um, But she wants to be cleansed, Brandon, yes. Um. Would that ye might lave me clean, right? She wa- she wants to be cleansed. Um, which of course shows that she believes that she's been soiled, right? So there's no sense of like, well, I mean, we didn't know, right? I mean, you know, God, it's uh, you you know, under the circumstances, you can't really blame us, you know. Uh, no harm, no foul, I mean this is not Nianori's perspective, right? She feels that she needs to be cleansed. she feels that she's she clearly feels that she has done something horrible, even if unintentioned, and she wants to be washed clean, but she is concerned that the whites that the the white foams of the forest stream are not going to be enough to wipe her clean that only the waters of the unremembering sea might have the but notice even there she's saying. I'm not going to be able to be redeemed. I'm not going to be able to be cleansed. The best I can hope for is forgetfulness, is unremember, is the unremembering sea. Um, and that final question, oh waters of the forest, whither do ye go? Do you go to the unremembering sea? See, will you take me to the unremembering sea? I don't know, but uh, on the chance that you do, at the end. Mike, Michael says the waters don't answer. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Lauren makes... uh, Lauren Falkenberg makes a wonderful observation. Uh, She's pointing to the sentence that when she... pointing to the fact that when she jumps um, and perished where it foams about the rocks below, but at that moment the sun arose above the trees, and light fell upon the waters, and the waters roared unheeding above the death of Nianori. And Lauren says there's definitely ambiguity from the narrator there, if not outright approval... You know, in the business of like the sun rising at the moment that she fell upon the waters. Um, I agree with you, Lauren, in the sense that we don't get the sense of condemnation, right? Um, I think we are, you know, if we're responding in horror at what has happened to her, that seems entirely justified, and, and, and just what the story has been prompting us to do. Does this story ask us to reel back in horror at the mere fact of the suicide? Right? They're like, oh, she committed suicide. That's a terrible thing to do. I don't see that prompting here. Um, I, I, so, so Lauren, uh, to that extent, I do. I do think I. Uh, I do think I agree with you. Um, now let's look at Turin's death. So did he leave the folk behind and drive heedless through the woods, calling ever the name of kind of like he was on the day he met Nia, uh, calling ever the name of Niniel till the woods rang most dismally with that word. And his going led him by circuitous ways ever to the glade of Silver Bowl, and none had dared to follow him. There shone the sun of afternoon, and lo, were all the trees grown sere, although it was high summer still. And noise there was as of dying autumn in the leaves. Withered were all the flowers in the grass, and the voice of the falling water was sadder than tears for the death of the white maiden Neonori, daughter of Urin that there had that there had been. There stood Turambar, spent at last, and there he drew his sword, and so, oh, first of all let me pause before we get to the sword. Turin's experience of the falls there. We get we get here some more perhaps commentary, right? Um on the one hand we have The terrible symbolism of the withering of the leaves, right? The trees growing sear, you know, meaning dry and withered. Um, And noise there was as of dying autumn in the leaves. There's the um, there's this sense of this there's this sense of grief. There's this sense of desolation coming about him. Notice the the sort of the implication. Um, the, the connection that he makes between the waterfalls and the tears, right? Sadder than the tears for the death of the white maiden, Nianori. Um So the linking, we've we got the white foam of the river and the white maiden, Nianori right? And the tears and Nino. Um, so there's this, like, near identification of the two things. Um, if this were a Greek myth, Neonori might simply have turned into a waterfall, right? Uh, and been transformed. You know, she she was the ma- she was the maiden of tears, and then she is transformed into a waterfall, and therefore is is crying forever. That would be like a very Greek uh, myth ending of that, right? Um, Tolkien doesn't do that, but symbolically we almost get that, right? She is associated with this waterfall. Um, uh, the silver bowl has become not just sort of the place of her death, but the place which almost, uh, which almost illustrates her death. Yes, Tom. Uh, of course, I, I was thinking. I, I was thinking uh, Niobe, uh, exactly. Um, and um, yeah, yes, Carita. Like trees in November. That's exactly what they look like. Um, anyway, okay. Then Tourmar and his sword. There stood Turambar, spent at last, and there he drew his sword, and said, Hail, Gortholfin, wand of death, for thou art all men's bane, and all men's lives fain wouldst thou drink, knowing no lord or faith, save the hand that wields thee, if it be strong. Thee only I have now. Slay me therefore, and be swift, for life is a curse, and all my days are creeping foul, and all my deeds are vile, and all I love is dead. And Gortholfin said, That will I gladly do, for blood is blood, and perchance thine is not less sweet than many a ones thou hast given me ere now. And Turambar cast himself then upon the point of Gortholfin, and the the dark blade took his life. First, how sketchy is that sword? You know, I mean the sword is deeply creepy, right? Um, uh, uh, it's, <laughs> the creative points out that it is not merely sketchy, it is evil. Um, yes, yes, Sarah says it's it's a sword, it's, the, the sword is a connoisseur of blood. Ew. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, um the sword simply desires blood, right? I mean, and that uh, perchance thine is not less sweet than many a ones thou hast given me ere now. I might enjoy, I, I'll probably enjoy your blood as much as I've enjoyed the blood of everybody else I've killed, right? Bring it on. It almost leaves us with this terrible, terrible image that the only one who ends this story happily ever after is Turin's sword, right? You know, we have every horrible waste and desolation, except for the sword, you know, which is like ah, that was great, right? I love this story, right? I mean why? <laughs> it's just terrible. Um, Turin's words, right? This is the culmination of of all of the misfortune of his entire life. Life is a curse, and all my days are creeping foul. Um, remember what later Turin says to his sword? Right? Later Turin says, will you, will you slay me also? And the sword speaks like a judge, not like a bloodthirsty monster, right? The, the sword is upset for its former master Beleg for Brondir slain unjustly, right? And it basically sentences and executes Turin for his crimes, for his sins. Um, not here, right? We don't get that emphasis on his sins, just on the creeping foul horror that his life has been and is, and which is now crashing in on him. All my deeds are vile, and all I love is dead. Um, just the 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 horrible horrible despair. Um. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, Exactly. Nick Morazzo was just thinking the same thing about the difference between the the the, the justice which uh, which which Gorthang later is dealing out to Turin, um, whereas Gortholphin is just having fun. because um, it's. Who he is? That's what he does. Um, now, okay. So back to the larger suicide question: Like, is how are we supposed to feel about this? You know, is this a big deal? Are we, you know, if we are worried about it, or if we're thinking that it's a big deal? Um, does, is that just because we are um, kind of imposing this? You know, like we know that Tolkien's Catholic, and we know that you know according to Christianity, suicide is a big deal. So we're imposing a, 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 a you know concern about suicide on this. If we didn't know that Tolkien was a Christian, would we have any reason to suspect that there was uh, you know a problem with suicide here? In the later version, it's a little bit less queer. In this version. It's quite clear, right? And we get a couple references uh, to this explicitly. Um, uh, First of all, let me uh, Well, okay. Let's 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 look at what the story says about this. But Turambar, this is now back uh, when he has just naming himself. He's just named himself Turambar because he's seeking death. But Turambar was filled with shame and anger, and perchance he had slain himself, so great was his madness, although thus might he not hope that ever his spirit would be freed from the dark glooms of Mandos, or stray into the pleasant paths of Valinor. But amidst his misery he bethought him of Filivrin's pallid face, and he bowed his head for the thought came into his heart to seek back through all the woods after her sad footsteps, even be it to Angamandi and the hills of iron. Maybe in that desperate venture he had found a kindly and swift death, or perchance an ill one, and maybe he had rescued Phileverin and found happiness, as there is precedent, of course, for somebody pursuing an orc band with captives and rescuing him successfully. Yet not thus was he fated to earn the name he had taken anew and the drake reading his mind suffered him not thus lightly to escape his tide of ill okay so two things i would emphasize about this passage first the initial and very clear statement that he he is you know in that moment you know in, in this again this is the moment of his of of you know right before his horrible choice when everything seems awful so great is his madness at the captivity of phileveren that perchance he had slain himself right he, he considers suicide in this moment the narrator says to us explicitly that this is an act of madness that suicide is an act of madness right so great was his madness that perchance he had slain himself and also spells out for us the spiritual consequences Although thus might he not hope that ever his spirit would be freed from the dark glooms of Mandos, or stray into the pleasant paths of Valinor. Now, a thing for context, especially for people who weren't here for the Book of Lost Tales 1 class, um, the fate of men is uncertain. There is not yet, in Tolkien's mythology, a clear sense of the souls of men going we know not whither and escaping the circles of the world. We don't, we're not, that's not said of men. Um, and indeed the, um, The, the, um, uh, eternal fate, you know, sort of this, the, the, the eternal fate of men, he's, it's really unclear, um, uh, Tolkien, I think the only fair way to describe the Book of Lost Tales version of that is that Tolkien hadn't really thought it through fully yet, um. But inasmuch, you know, the only things that he does say suggest that men go to the halls of Mendoz, but they can, some of them, do find the favor to go to Valinor, to go to the paths of Valinor. And indeed what it sounds is a lot like traditional mythological descriptions of even, you know, like... uh, uh, even like Greek ones of you know the portion of the underworld where the the where the unjust are tormented and uh, you know the Elysian fields um, you know there are there are, um, uh, though I, I think the one I'm actually thinking is not Greek but Roman I'm thinking the Aeneid um, uh, in my head right now when I'm describing these things um, but uh, but anyway so. That seems to be the model that he's kind of using in his mythology here. But, howsoever that be, the point is perfectly clear. That those who commit suicide can never be free from the dark glooms of Mandos. Um, You're on a one-way ticket to the bad place if you commit suicide. That's perfectly clear in this passage. And the narrator states this, at least with the tone of authority here. Um, now, then later on, so this is like, again, oh, oh, wait, wait sorry, I didn't I didn't do the second half of the, of the passage. So the first half of the passage states that stuff really clearly, but also notice the implications of the second half of the passage, right? But amidst his misery, he bethought him of Filiverin's pallid face, and he bowed his head, for the thought came into his heart, right? Rallying against that mad temptation to commit suicide, what he clings to instead is this desperate idea, right? This thought that comes into his heart to seek back through all the woods after her sad footsteps, even be it to Angamandi and the Hills of Iron, right? No, no, no. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep after them. Uh, uh, I'm going to, even if there's no hope. I'm going to, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, um, nevertheless, I'm going to do that, and maybe I'll die, maybe she's already dead, and maybe I will die, but that's how I'm going to choose to die, right? And the narrator says, hey, who knows what might have happened? Had Turin made that choice, so again, this is right before the choice he made in, in slide one that we were talking about, right? His first impulse is a good one. Seems like later Turin never has good impulses, but his, his first impulse is a good one, right? Right? I'm going to dedicate my life to following Fai I'm going to try to rescue her. And if I can't rescue her, I will die seeking her. Um, and the narrator's like, hey, who knows how that would have turned out? Um, any number of ways that could have turned out. It's true that the majority of the ways that could have turned out were in turn's death. But hey, um, he might have found a kindly and swift death, right? Finding death is not just like f- you know being killed uh in the doorway of her father's house wouldn't have been a bad death either right he could at least have found um you know that um that that Boromir kind of death yeah jonah says instead of a suicide he contemplates a suicide mission exactly but it's totally different right yeah. completely different context um it's a heroic death it's a it's he would die doing the right thing right um and the narrator suggests maybe it would have turned out, right? Maybe he had rescued Philivern and found happiness. Could be, right? But it didn't happen. Um because it was not thus was not thus was he fated to earn the name he had taken anew. And because the dragon has other plans and is about to lay the whammy on him that's gonna lead him to make the bad choice. So again, notice okay, this is another reason why. Even his one major, really bad choice here is still... Like, we have the content like, he first made the good choice and was only swayed from that good choice and pushed to the bad choice through the influence and enchantment of the dragon. Anyhow, okay. Um, but look at the end. Then Urin departed and he would not touch the gold. Well, don't worry about Uren right now. We're, uh, I'm, I'm, by the way, deliberately leaving uren aside now. Um, when we do the chapter on the Nauglafrang, we'll come back to the Uren material that we get at the end of this story, so I'm not leaving it behind. Um, I also wanted to talk some about the way that dragons are described and, and, and a couple other things, but we'll save that too. We're going to come back to those things um, when we do the Nauglafrang. So I promise that we won't... We won't um, those like those really interesting passages where he describes like other species of dragons and stuff like that. Um we'll definitely talk about that. But um uh but uh but I will uh but but not not now I'll save that. Um one more. Let's just look at this last and again thinking about their suicides. Look at look at what happens to them after death. Uh, so then Urin departa but would not touch the gold and stricken in years he reached Hissolomean died among men, but his words living after him bred estrangement between elves and men. Yet it is said that when he was dead, his shade fared into the woods seeking Mavwin, and long those twain haunted the woods about the fall of Silver Bowl bewailing their children. That's pretty sad. But the elves of Kor have told, and they know, that at last Urin and Mavwin fared to Mondos, and Neonori was not there, nor Turin their son." So Urnumav shades after haunting Silver Bowl for a long time, show up in Mondos, and they're like, hey, where are Nianori and Turin, right? We are thought, finally, at least we could have, like, a ghostly family reunion in misery here in Mondos, right? I mean, was that too much to ask? Turimbar indeed had followed Nianori along the black pathways to the doors of Fui. But Fui would not open to them. Neither would Vefantur. Um... Now, who is this Fui? Well, we'd have to go back to the Book of Lost Tales, Part One, for this. We don't have time. Um, but Fui is the character who will later become Nienna, and who is at first the wife of Veyfuntur, who is Mendoz, um, uh, and she is the cold goddess of the dead, um, who is involved uh, in you know punishing the dead. And she's Fui is really scary. Um, And they go, so they follow the black pathways to the doors of Fui, presumably based on what we were told earlier because they committed suicide Um, and um, um, yeah, Karita, exactly she's the one who makes tears, she's responsible for tears, Um, that's like what she does, she's the tear generator Um, okay, so anyway so so Turin follows Neonori down the black pathway to the doors of Fui but Fui won't take them and Vefantur won't take them. So the, the doors of Mandos are shut against them. Though that's supposed to be their destiny if they commit suicide. Yet now the prayers of Uren and Mavwin came even to Manwe, and the gods had mercy on their unhappy fate, so that those twain, Turin and Nianori, entered into Almir, the bath of flame even as Uruwendi and her maidens had done in ages past, before the first rising of the sun. Uruwendi is the the, the one who is driving the sun. She's the, the sun person. And so were all their sorrows and stains washed away, and they dwelt as shining Valar among the blessed ones, and now the love of that brother and sister is very fair. But Turambar indeed shall stand beside Fionnwe in the great rack, and Melko and his drakes shall curse the sword of Mormakil. So Manway listens. They're forgiven. They have to be cleansed first, though. It's not that suicide isn't a big deal, apparently. They still have to be cleansed. The stream was not capable of doing it. It requires fire to cleanse them. But once they are indeed cleansed in the Valar's bath of flame they're purified, and their sorrows and stains, both, are washed away, and they dwell among the Blessed Ones, and I love that line, and now the love of that brother and sister is very fair. All of the sweet and beautiful elements, those sweet and beautiful elements which placed in the terrible circumstances of their lives were the the, the center of such horror in their earlier story, now are merely lovely. And they know one another and they love one another and are cleansed of both stain and sorrow. Um, And he... We're given a glimpse of the fact that he is going after this redemption here. He is going to play a crucial role. It's kind of... Um, it's only implied here, right? Melko and his drakes shall curse the sword of Mormakil. But the idea here seems to be that Turin is going to get some payback, and indeed, in later versions of the story, but not nearly so late as the Narn or the or the Silmarillion, um, in uh, in like the early early nineteen thirties, uh, like nineteen thirty 1930 to nineteen thirty three. Um, in the version of the stories that Tolkien writes, then he explicitly says that in the Battle of Battles, in the Dagor Dagorath, um, the the last battle at the end of the world, Melko is finally killed, and it's Turin who kills him with his black sword. Um, that reference, when Tolkien makes it in the context of the of the you know of the 1930 Quenta seems to come completely out of freaking nowhere. <laughs> I mean, it seems to be... Um, uh, you know, when he says that, it, it's like, whoa, like, random! Turin comes back! Didn't see that one coming! Um, it makes a lot more sense in the context of this passage, and, you know, in, in this story itself, it makes a lot more sense. Given... Um, thinking about coming back to the question that we were asking at the beginning, right? Why is this a favorite story among men? I don't think that it's only this ending; it's only the redemption here at the end that makes it a favorite story. But I think that the redemption here kind of resonates with one. One of the things we were looking at before: you know, why is this a favorite story? This seems to be a story which really captures the human condition. Now, that's a terrible. <laughs> people might think that's a terrible and pessimistic thing to say about the human condition, um, but um, but nevertheless, it really it really captures a lot. Um, And yet, it ends in redemption, and cleansing, and even, in a sense, restitution. Turin, who is deprived of happiness through the misfortune of his whole life, is given happiness, and the love of that brother and sister is very fair. Um, Turin, who could never find love, and every time he did find love, lost it in terrible, awful ways now has it forever, right? And is as, shi- is as a shining Valar among the Blessed Ones and moreover is made by the Valar into an instrument to to throw down Melko and his drakes, right? So Glorind and Melko in the end, it's Turin and by extension mankind as a whole who have the last laugh here. Um, Don, standing, asks a wonderful question. Is this why Turin is called Elf Friend in the Fellowship? Wonderful question, Don. The question, obviously, is when Tolkien wrote that, how would he have thought of Turin? Um, What would the name Turin have evoked in Tolkien's own mind at the time that he wrote the Council of Elrond, and I think it wouldn't be that far from this. I mean, it's far from this. Like chronologically, it's it's like twenty years later that he's writing the Council of Elrond, um, but he's less than five years removed. Well. He's within a decade, anyway, of the of the version in which Turin is still the one who's killing Melkor at the who's killing Morgoth at the end of the world, um, and uh, um, so that rates, <laughs> you know. I mean, like, okay, Turin during his life might have screwed everything up for you know for almost every elf he ever came in contact with, but you know, at the end of the day. There's uh, there are prophecies in existence that say that Turin is gonna is gonna actually um, uh, be on the winning side here uh, when push comes to shove. Was that something that was in Elrond's mind? Maybe, maybe I like that idea. Don, and, uh, Carita was just saying that too. I like that idea. Um, I, I I couldn't prove that that's what was in his mind at that point, Don. Um, but um, um, but. Um, But I liked it. It certainly makes more sense than anything else I can think of. Um, There's very little in the Turin story, certainly in the later Turin story, that would seem to justify Elrond's comments. Um, But the Council of Elrond is written significantly before the later Turin story. Um, the revision, you know, these major revisions to the Turin story, the the the, the, the later Narn, which uh, Christopher Tolkien publishes in Unfinished Tales, is written like during the Fellowship of the Ring period, like during the Lord of the Rings period, like during the publication period of the Lord of the Rings. It's, it's written after um, he wrote the Lord of the Rings. So, um, uh, so yeah, I like that. Um, I like that. Okay, um, I'm going to let you guys go now, finally, after keeping you wait tonight. Um, but, uh, as I say, I do have some things that I want to talk about, about dragons, uh, and stuff, but I'll, I'll save that for, um, I'll save that for the, uh, for the a few classes from now. Next time, we're going to do, uh, we're going to talk about the Fall of Gondolin. Um, so, um, I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about the Fall of Gondolin next time. More, um, more um uh terrible tragedy and destruction to come uh in in gondolin next time um but uh you know there too we're going to see a version of the story which is quite different uh from later versions um so uh so so that's going to be a lot of fun so see you for gondolin next week thanks for joining me everybody uh and uh have a good week talk to you next week bye now